New national standards for forests mean large slash has to be removed from designated land vulnerable to erosion. These are the first changes to forestry regulations since Cyclone Gabriel's devastation of farmland and beaches with forestry slash carried downstream. Where it's too unsafe to remove the slash, foresters will need to apply for a resource consent, giving the decision to local councils as to how to manage slash at certain sites. Commercial forests set up for carbon sequestration will now have to be will now be treated the same as plantation forests, giving councils more power over where they can be planted. The new environmental standards replace previous regulations set up in 2017 and come into force on November 2nd. Grant Dodson is president of the Forest Association and our guest first. Grant, thanks for your time. Good morning. Good morning. So which land is most affected by this? Talk us through the red zone, orange zone land in parts of the country, please. Yeah, so so the National Environmental Standard now for commercial forestry has four land classes, green, yellow, orange and red. Orange and red, particularly red, are the highest erosion prone zones. So typically steep land with very weak soil geology. So those are the areas that have caused the trouble and that's the area where we need to pay most attention to getting slash off. Is most of it Tairawhiti East Coast, um, Gisborne Hawke's Bay area, Salmon Nelson? Is that correct? That, that That is correct. That's by far the majority of red zone land. That's where our weaker soil types are in, in the country, yes. So from a forest owner's perspective, what changes? Yeah, so so there's there's kind of three components to this NES change. So so the first one, and I'll just quickly cover off the first two and then get the slash. So, so, so the first one is that it brings in to the NES the carbon or permanent forestry. Now, now that's something that's, that's reasonable because the carbon forestry or permanent forestry doesn't fall under any, any regulatory regime at the moment, so it's been brought into the same one that, 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 that commercial harvested foresters have. So that's reasonable. The second one is there's um, a requirement there for resource consenting from new, for new planting. So that's something we have some, some pretty strong concerns about because it, it really empowers local councils to decide where forestry can and can't go. You know, we, we know we've got some councils around the country that, that are not pro-forestry, and um, I think it's really important that we have you know, a balanced mix of trees and farmland in the landscape because we know trees can fight erosion in certain places. Just, and, just pause. Uh, does that does good... that apply? Does that apply specifically to the carbon forestry, or is it is it new no. for all forestry? My understanding is it's new for all forestry. Okay, carry on, please. Yep. So, so that's something we have concerns about because we we believe that a landowner should have should have the right to decide what crop and forestry is just a crop. To, to grow on their land as they see fit to get the best economic return. And the councils don't necessarily have the right skill set to, to go picking winners for land use. To, we believe that should be with the individual landowner. But look, the third bit and the bit you're most interested in is slash. So, look, clearly the forest industry needs to do far better with slash management on our orange and red zone soils. So so we do cautiously welcome the re- the regulation. The the issue is, is in that that really tough country where the harvesting jobs are extremely technical and you know it, it is important to get the trees off the land because if you look at the damage from the cyclone a lot of it was erosion from full trees so so we do need to harvest those areas and we need to certainly get as much slash as we can off but as you alluded to there is some health and safety concerns you're talking about getting people down into steep gullies erodible gullies and 
you know, that needs to be carefully managed. And ultimately, the forest industry does have the expertise there. Um, this legislation does give consenting power to councils, but it's something we're going to have to work very closely with them in so that they, they understand both the environment environmental impacts, but also the health and safety impacts because they're injuring people. So what slash do you have to remove now? It's two metres in length, I think, and uh, just just explain what changes with respect to slash the debris from harvesting that now must be removed. Yeah, so so when you when you harvest trees, obviously you, you pick up all the big logs, most of the branches get pulled up to the landings and get um, get removed by the, by the processing machine, but there's always you know, trees that break, there's large branches, other other stuff that ends up staying on the cutover. Now, um, what the new regs say is that anything two metres long and 10 centimetres at the large end needs to be removed. Now, that's a pretty small piece of wood. Um, in most cases, that, that's, that's gettable, but in some of these real steep, highly eroded gullies, it can be pretty difficult because we want to do it mechanised if we can. We don't want people on the ground with chainsaws and the, on these steep slopes where it can be avoided. So it's a, it's about finding practical solutions to get it out. We know it has to come out. We don't want it leaving our properties. But at the same time, we don't want to be hurting our people. And that's, that's that nuance at that difficult end of the spectrum that needs to be. Where will the slash go now? Well, it's going to have to... Well, it, hopefully, the majority of it will get utilised. It will go to bioenergy and other sources like that. But where where there is no market for it, it's it's going to have to be put in a place where it can't get into the waterways. And do you know where those places are yet? These come into effect on November 2nd, these rules. Yeah, well, well look, I mean, it, it can be off-site, it can be chipped, it can be you know, moved into, you know, chipped into a form where it can't, cause issues or it can be moved up onto a stable ridge top, places like that. So if there's no market for it, those are your options. And, and a lot of that's going on already. Just come back to the matter of the resource consenting for new planting. Uh, you, Depending on who you're talking to, you'll hear very different stories as to whether there is a, a massive land use change happening very quickly in parts of the country, particularly uh, Tairawhiti, Gisborne, um, Hawke's Bay, actually parts of Waikato, parts of Otago, uh, and, and Wairarapa. A rapid transfer of what agriculturists would regard as high-quality soils being sold for carbon sequestration because the return is better. Um, foresters have a different view and will quote you know, different percentages, etc., but there's no doubt this is a passionate issue. What do you see the impact of this resource consenting change being? What will it require landowners to do in the first instance? And how is it going to play in to, say, a farmer thinking, I'm going to sell my land to a, a carbon forester. It's going to make heaps more for me. I'm going to move on. How is that all going to be affected by this? Yeah, look, there's, there's been a, a huge amount of, of risk put into an investment either in forestry or in carbon forestry over the last six months. So we've seen a whole lot of changes to the and proposed changes to the to the ETS. We've seen um, party policies on on consenting, which have just been put in by the Labour Party. We've got some national party policies there. And look, all of that just adds to the risk. And you know what what has happened since since then is land prices have tumbled um, and there's really been very little land transacted and, and the only planting that's gone on is people planting their residual land banks from, from what they've bought in the past. So um, planting for forestry is on new land is basically stopped um, 
across the country or in, or in the process of stopping. And that's not that's not an entirely good thing for New Zealand. You know, like you'll hear fed farmers talking about and beef and lamb talking about 200,000 hectares having having gone into forestry. Um, only a small percentage of that is actually carbon forestry. The majority of it's commercial forestry. But you know, even that 200,000 hectares that that they talk about. You know, there's eight and a half million hectares of sheep and beef land in New Zealand, roughly. It's only a, a, a fraction of, of a percent of the, of the land. And most of that is, or can potentially be, on, on okay. land that isn't... So isn't are you saying this so, has brought a shuddering halt to those land sales for the intention of carbon farming? Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Okay. So... And what what's the resource consent? At what stage of a process would you need to get resource consent? And and what would you need to prove? I mean, first, is it just to prove that it's suitable land, that it's not going to create a slash problem for future generations? What what do well, you what understand you, you the, do? the 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 cases to be made? Well, well, what you have to do is firstly you have to buy the land, and and then once you own it, because you can't get a resource consent unless it's your land, so you have to own the land, and then you have to get a resource consent to plant it. So, so your ability to use that land for what you've intended for is is then put under control of the council, and and the council may well decide that you can only plant part of the property, or you can't plant any of it, or um, so so how can you actually value the property if you don't have certainty of land use? Grant, what stage the process we're at? The full line by line details are coming out tomorrow, but this is a done deal. This this national this these new standards, right? It's come after many years. It predates Cyclone Gabriel, so this is a done deal. This is what you're abiding by from November second. Yep, that's that, that, that's correct. And look, the NESPF came in in 2018, I think, so it's about five years old. So part of this incorporates a, a, a timely review of that legislation, but there's also been some, some some new components put in around the consenting and some new components put in around the slash. Grant, thanks very much. I appreciate your time. That's Grant Dodson, who's President of the Forest Owners Association. Listening in is Gary Taylor, Chief Executive of the Environmental Defence Society, who's shown a lot of interest in all of these matters. Uh, Gary, good morning. Thanks for your time. Morning, Catherine. Let's work through it. And actually, let's begin with the slash first. How far will this go to preventing further catastrophes if it is enforceable and enforced? Well, I think it goes a long way, and it's a very good uh, response to the sort of the late-breaking Ty Rafferty inquiry, which, of course, came after most of the work had been done on this instrument. So it's good that they managed to to get that control in. Um, I mean, when you hear Grant talk about the challenges on, um, you know, rough country, as he puts it. Um, I mean, that's the kind of country where uh, this kind of forestry operation shouldn't be going on anyway. So you believe that's going to work. Um, We'll come in a moment to a a third guest about where we're at with cleaning up the last lot, but you believe that's appropriate as a regulation uh, going forward. Yes, I do, but um, I need to say that I think this is this is the first in a two-stage process of reviewing these regulations. Uh, there's another process to come, um, and that will look at more fundamental changes to the uh, the way that forestry operates, both uh, both exotic um, carbon forests and plantation forests in this country and look at where we might need to move towards continuous cover harvesting, 
uh, where we might need to place, place more severe limits on forestry and orange and red zone land. And, and most importantly of all, I would say, where we need to actually incentivise the creation of permanent native forests to, uh, to replace some of these um, inappropriately located uh, uh, pine forests. We'll come back to that. Let's stay with the regulations that are yep. coming into force in November. The second one is bringing, um, bringing the uh, carbon forests and indeed the exotic forests into a system where they need resource consent. This would seem to be a significant move from the perspective of the foresters, right, and the landowners. How will it work from your uh, information and your participation and, and what's been a you know, years-long process here? Yeah, well, from what I've seen, um, it looks like there are trigger points uh, where um, consents are required. Um, and when they're reached, um, the the consenting process is mostly what's called a controlled activity consent, which means that it has to be granted but subject to conditions. So that's a, that, that is a sort of um, a check and balance, if you like, um, and I think it's pleasing to see that um, the regulations are now looking at the whole uh, forest cycle for plantation forests. So, you know, actually, is the land suitable for these trees? Uh, what does the planting plan look like? Um, uh, what about um, harvesting and roading and quarrying within the forest? Um, all of those activities uh, could be subject to council control. And I think that's, that's entirely appropriate. One of the problems we've had is that in many instances, councils have wanted to impose uh, more stringent uh, controls over forestry operations because they do know their area best, uh, but haven't been able to do so because of the way the previous regs were formulated. Do you expect councils will enforce their own now more stringent requirements and do all of them have the capacity actually, uh, the resource power, certainly Grant was suggesting not, to understand quite detailed uh, parameters here and I'm sure some within every council will but will they have enough to deal with the scale of work now coming their way, potentially? Well, I think if they don't, they'll get it because part of the package I, I saw was to provide uh, technical support to councils uh, from central government agencies, MFE and MPI. Uh, I think that's entirely appropriate. I think if you talk to the uh, Gisborne uh, District Council, uh, they would say that they're very happy to be able to uh, impose uh, more stringent regulations on forestry in their district. Um, and I think most councils would. Uh, and I think the other thing, just to be sort of really frank about it, is that Grant is kind of saying, look, uh, trust us, we know what we're doing best. And I think that that um, argument will fall on deaf ears in most parts of the country that have had um, you know, forestry impacts because it's clear that, um, that it's a low yeah, trust. Yeah, but sector. to be fair... That is also the legacy of the 1990s planting, um, and th those were decisions made a long time ago that are in part uh, a part of this problem. Gary, just one final yep. point. Yep. Uh, Grant was telling us that he believes the, the, the looming regulations that are now landing may have brought a screeching halt to the 
conversion or the sale of agricultural land for carbon uh, sequestration. Now, again, is this a case of some sort of balance needed? Tree planting is seen as part of, as seen by the Climate Commission, as part of um, the country's means of getting anywhere near its commitments on yeah. on climate. Are you risking going from sort of feast to famine uh, if these regulations shut down uh, this particular part of the picture? Well, I was interested to hear what he said about uh, that um, activity slowing um, or stopping. Um, I mean, I think it should. Um, I don't think permanent carbon forests are needed. Um, and they grow, the, they grow the quickly, problem, Gary. I know that, you're going to talk about natives, and I'll let you no, no, talk about I, natives, I, I but won't. they grow quickly. Yeah, and, no, and, the, and in that respect, are they not part of the tree planting part of the picture? Yeah, yes, yes, they are, and I won't talk about natives if you don't want me to. But, you're welcome. Um, you're welcome to. But this <laughs> is, but this is where we end up often in kind of absolutes. And, yeah, no, and well, it's well, not helpful, is it? No, well, here's the thing. Um, if you have uh, too many uh, uh, carbon forests, the price of, um, it, 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 the price of um, New Zealand units goes down and it's cheaper for emitting companies to buy those units than it is to actually reduce emissions. This is the gross emissions versus net emissions argument. And what the Climate Commission has been saying, as I understand it, is that they're concerned that we're getting too many trees uh, and we're shifting the focus away from gross emissions and really that's what we need in order to get to, uh, to our targets. Gary, I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Gary Taylor's Chief Executive of the Environmental Defence Society. And our third guest listening in patiently, uh, welcome back to uh, Bridget Parker. Bridget spoke to us after Cyclone Gabriel hit, describing the extensive damage to her home, farm and orchard from the slash that washed through her property near Tolaga Bay. And it's not the first time, it was repeat times. Uh, she has, in fact, been involved in action against um, a, a forestry company. So, Bridget, uh, you're always welcome, and thank you for making time for us this morning. Sure, Catherine. Can we speak about the regulations? Are you hearing what you think will make a difference in the future? <clears throat> well, obviously, um, we are we are thrilled um, with Manager um, Parker and Henardi's latest announcement. Um, it's a great start to some change, which is grossly needed, um, especially on the on the steep slopes of Tairawhiti. Um I think one of the big um, issues that faces us up here is um, we heard uh, Grant Dobson referring to the landowners having um, a say in these things. But who are the landowners, Catherine? Um, number one, they're absent. They don't live here. So they don't have to put up with their logs and sediment filling up our houses and farms and ruining our businesses, right? Because many of them live overseas and all of these um, blocks of land have got um, a large amount of people um, who own them. Take, for example, the IKEA group um, who are using New Zealand to offset their own pollution in their own country and then they're coming over here being allowed to buy New Zealand land and then uh, managing to ruin the land, pollute it. In other words, they're double polluters, and then they pollute again when they process 
these logs, but New Zealand becomes their dumping site for, for their development. And then all the New Zealanders are running along buying their cheap furniture out of the warehouses. So the point I'm, I firstly want to make is these landowners are absent. They don't live here, and that's why they don't care. Can I, can I, I just want to make that point very clearly. Now, the second thing is that the legal, um, the legalities behind these new consents that we're talking about, these new resource consents, the money that sits behind these companies is so vast that all that will end up happening, most likely, is they'll go to court to fight the challenges around the new consenting laws, and they will win. Because our little councils, we haven't got the putia to fight them. So that's a major problem that's going to have to be have to be looked at. Controlling the activity of those consents is going to be enormous and it's a huge job to ask of, of the councils. They will certainly need the backing of the government to do that. Um, and as far as pines go and the suitability of them and continuing them, I think um, Te Tairawhiti has had enough pines planted. We would like to see all pine tree planting, whether it be for carbon or for commercial forest, to stop yesterday. We don't want any more. Bridget, can you also update us on landowners like yours and others with respect to the clean-up from, from Gabriel? I was just reading a Hawke's Bay beach. Gosh, I just haven't got the article to hand. A Hawke's Bay beach where there's not really an obvious adjacent landowner uh, and the logs are just piled up. Yes, Catherine, that landowner sits just north of Wairoa and um, it has com- those logs have totally wiped out a Department of Conservation campsite that has been used by for for decades and decades of families returning to you know to holiday. I mean, the holidaying of New Zealanders is over really. Our beaches are, are bigger than they're dangerous. You know, our dear little boy Oliver, who died here in Gisborne, we've got to ask ourselves how many more children are going to get hurt on the beach before the forest, before the politicians are going to have the guts to say, if you are a prosecuted or we can prove that you are, have lost your social licence because you're a bad neighbour, then we will shut you down and shut them down immediately, which is what should be happening. So coming back to us, um, I'm looking out here right now. Um, I had to laugh at the red zoning of land and all that talk, orange zoning, yellow zoning. Well, we've still got um, a red zoned cottage to yellow zone cottages. Um, the red zone cottage um, has currently got a digger I'm looking at trying to pull away the um, sediment from around it because the people that have lived there have had to live in a warehouse up until now. The warehouse is no longer available. And so in the short term, they are moving back into the red zoned home because there is nothing else available for them to live and work in Antolica Bay. Our farm has got hundreds of logs still all over it and our waterways are choked with Pinus radiata. We have um, thousands of tons of logs sitting in between us and the forest that they've come from, which is 25 kilometres up the road. Um, That road is now totally shut due to the size of the forestry lands that's taken place there, as is our road to the north, um, is shut because the logs have taken out the approaches to the bridges. So if the three roads out of here, eight months down the track, we have one road out. Um, the people here are trying to get crops in. They're trying to um, turn over the silt 
to get it back into the soil, which is you know lacking in nitrogen hugely. The costs of doing that are enormous. Um, in our case, we have done nothing but move logs and silt on this beautiful property now for eight and a half months. And the forestry companies all over New Zealand continue to argue that the sediment is not their problem, despite the fact that the prosecutions by the judge state that they have been prosecuted for discharge of woody debris and sediment. They refuse to move any sediment. And in the case of us, we've got nearly 500,000 cubes of silt still sitting on this farm. And we have nowhere to take it. It's sitting in our beautiful paddock that should be going into a crop, but we've got nowhere to take it. And we're the same as many, many other people throughout Tairawhiti. Bridget, thank you as always. Thank you very much, Bridget Parker.